You're listening to Revelation, God Wins, from Coram Deo Church, a gospel-centered missional church community in Omaha, Nebraska. For more information, visit cdomaha.com. This morning's scriptures come from Revelations chapters 8 and the first part of chapter 9. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and of the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe! Woe! Woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power, like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told to not harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. And they will long to die, but death will flee from them. This is the word of the Lord. If you've been around Christianity or Christians for a while, you might have noticed that there's two kinds of prayer. There are, on the one hand, prayers that are sort of safe, timid, mild, and then there are bold, assertive, fierce prayers. The kinds of prayers that make nice Christian people a little bit 
nervous. We have some of these prayers actually recorded for us in the Bible, uh, especially in the book of Psalms. For instance, Psalm 55, the psalmist cries out, Let death take my enemies by surprise. Let them go down alive to the grave. Likewise, in Psalm 69, pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May they be blotted out of the book of life and may they not be listed with the righteous. Psalm 109, may his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. These prayers are in your Bible. These are expressions of worship to God. In fact, I, I, I think I would say, if you've never prayed in this way, if you've never prayed for God to pour out His judgment on someone, I wonder if maybe your experience of prayer is somewhat shallow. See, if you love the Lord Jesus, and if you long for God's will to be done and for His word to be obeyed, then there are times in life when your prayers will be fierce, like this. I heard recently uh, of a father, professing Christian man, uh, who was abusing his own children. Uh, this man who was called, commissioned by God to provide an environment of safety, security, provision, protection for his family, became the very man that his children needed to be protected from. And as I heard that, and wrestled with that reality that the prayer that rose up in my soul was very much along the lines of the psalmist. God, would you bring judgment on that man? Would you let him feel the weight of your anger, your wrath? There are some times when prayers for judgment are the only prayers that are suitable. And I think we've muted this reality in our culture because after all, we're fairly comfortable and we're pretty good at repressing deep emotion and pain and suffering. But when you talk with Christians in other parts of the world who have experienced deep pain, suffering, betrayal and hardship, oftentimes they're better than we are at valuing and appreciating these parts of the Bible. Now, some of you here this morning are skeptics, and, and you're, you will say, well, that's exactly why I don't believe the Bible, because religion, after all, all religion is sort of bloodthirsty and violent, and it's all about getting God to be on our side and judge our enemies, and so that's a good reason to throw out all religion in general. If that's your response, I would say it just means that you don't actually understand the logic of the Christian gospel very well. Because you see... Praying this way, praying in line with these psalms, is exactly what allows Christians to live peaceably and gently and humbly in the world. It's the existence of prayers like this and the model they provide of engaging with God that allow us to actually be at peace. Because what this type of prayer allows us to do is to entrust judgment and retribution to God so that we don't have to take it out ourselves. You're aware, aren't you, that there are cultures in the world where if someone harms you or your family, the social mores of that culture are that you return an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You, you return with vengeance. But see, what 
the Christian gospel reminds us of is that vengeance is able to be entrusted to a God who is holy, who is righteous, who will punish sin. And so in our moments of suffering and pain and hardship, when we long for justice, we can entrust those longings to a God who will ultimately bring justice. There are many people in Corondale who... uh, your childhood was like what I just described. I heard from a guy this week who said, if I ever see my dad again, my first instinct will be to kill him. Because of what he did to me when I was a kid. That, that's what rises up in me. What are you to do with that? Right? If we tell you just be a good Christian and don't act on that, then, then your only choice is to repress that or pretend it doesn't exist. But if we tell you, man, read your Bible and entrust those longings and that desire for justice to a holy God, and that's what enables you then to live in forgiveness and peace with those who have wronged you. See, that's a weightier and deeper, fuller way of dealing with sin and suffering. The Christian gospel is about deferring justice and hoping in a God who will bring Justice, who will make right what is wrong, who will bring every deed that's done in darkness into the light and pay back what sin deserves. And in Revelation chapter 8 and 9, what we see is God acting in response to the prayers of His people, and specifically His people's prayers and longings for justice. Look with me at Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. What we see in Revelation 8 and 9 is God bringing judgment on the earth in response to the prayers of His people. God assures us our prayers, our longings for justice do not go unheeded. They do not go unheard. They do not go ignored. Rather, the Bible tells us God is storing those things up for the day of His judgment. He will answer those prayers. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not next week, maybe not next year. But they will not go unnoticed and unanswered. And so we see in these chapters of Revelation, God answering these prayers and bringing judgment to the earth. Now, in order for me to preach on these chapters of Revelation, we first of all need to just engage the text on just a basic level, because at first glance, this is sort of hard to understand, isn't it? I mean, we've got mountains falling into the sea, and things turning to blood, and locusts with hair like women and teeth like lions. I mean, it's it's a little confusing. Can we agree? So let's just get our minds around what's going on in this text, okay? I mentioned this last week, but let me say it again. Uh, In order to understand Revelation, you've got to see that Revelation is not chronological, but rather it is cyclical. In other words, it's not laying out a timeline of events. It's it's showing the same climactic judgment through a series of visions that all speak about essentially the same series of events. 
your easiest clue to this, the thing that should clue you into this, is the fact that decreation language, okay, stars falling, the, falling from the sky, sun going dark, God bringing his wrath, final judgment, occurs in chapter 6, chapter 11, chapter 16, and chapter 20. Okay, so you need to ask the question, does that mean God destroys the world and then rebuilds it and destroys it again, and then rebuilds it and destroys it again, and then rebuilds it and destroys it again? Or... Are these four ways of speaking of the same set of events, the same things happening? And in fact, that is the way the literature works. It's the way Revelation is structured, is in this cyclical pattern. And so let me show you a diagram that I think will help you. It'll give you a picture of how to make sense of the book of Revelation. Three things you have to see. The first is the presence of recapitulation. Okay, that's just another word for that cycle effect, that, that there's a recapitulation, a returning to the same series of events multiple times. And so that's sort of indicated by that spiral pattern. But secondly, there's also progression. We're moving through history toward the end of time. And so as we go through the book of Revelation, there's a progression toward new heavens, new earth, new creation. And finally, there's escalation. As we go through these cycles, these visions, there's an escalation of intensity. There's sort of a, a, a rising of climactic intensity that comes as we go through the book. And so if you pay attention to these three things, the, the pattern of recapitulation, the reality of progression, and the reality of escalation, it will help you make sense of these various visions that we find throughout the book of Revelation. So Applying this to what we've been looking at the past two weeks, you'll remember last week in chapter 6, we saw Jesus opening seven seals, the seals that held together the scroll of God's will, God's plan for history. And as he opened the first four seals, we saw there was four horsemen that represented conquest, war, famine, pestilence. And we said last week, none of those things are the end. Right? That's the reality of life in a fallen world. The reality is... God has cursed the world because of sin. We live under the effects of the fall, and therefore, famine, war, pestilence, these things happen. This is the nature of life in a fallen world. Now, this week in Revelation chapter 8, we see uh, angels blowing seven trumpets. Okay, so you should see already recapitulation. Seven seals, seven trumpets. In chapter 16, you're going to see seven bowls. All right? Series of seven. Uh, and again, these trumpets in chapter 8 affect the created order. Okay, so similar to the first four seals, there's, there's God's judgment poured out on sort of material creation. But we also see from last week to this week, progression. The seals, we said, represented life in a fallen world. But in the trumpets, we begin to see God's direct judgment, God's pouring out of His judgment or wrath on the earth. Trumpets in the Bible are always signs of coming doom. All right, if you remember in the Old Testament when God's people marched around Jericho, what did they do? They blew trumpets. All right, this is a sign of God's coming judgment. And so trumpets serve to warn, to tune our ears to the fact that, that God's judgment is now coming. And additionally, we see escalation. We looked last week in the seals, it said a fourth of the earth was affected. This week in the trumpets, you're going to see a third of the earth is affected. There's an escalation, there's an increase in intensity from last week to this week. Uh, additionally, the trumpet judgments, as you heard them read, they should sound familiar because they're all modeled on the plagues in the book of Exodus. You remember when God delivered his people from Egypt, 
He brought forth a number of plagues on the Egyptians, including hail, water being turned to blood, darkness. Right? These are all just recapitulating not only visions in the book of Revelation, but all the way back to the book of Exodus, which is sort of the, the paradigmatic biblical account of God's deliverance and judgment. And so these trumpet judgments in Revelation hearken back to the book of Exodus. So in Revelation 8, verse 6, we see the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. And then it, it goes through each angel blowing a trumpet and a judgment that comes along with that. So in the first trumpet, chapter, or verse 7, we see God bringing judgment on the earth, the trees, the grass. A second trumpet, verses 8 and 9, we see God's judgment on the sea and on ships, that is, seagoing commerce. In the third trumpet, we see God's judgment on water supply, rivers, streams, fresh water. And in the fourth trumpet, we see sun, moon, and stars affected by God's judgment. Now, as we've been saying throughout the book of Revelation, this language is all highly symbolic. So for instance, if you want to look at verse 10 with me, it says, The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. Okay, so are we to take from this that there's actually a star that falls on the water supply? And if so, how is it possible that it corrupts all the fresh water in the world at the same time? Certainly, you can envision something like this happening, and it may be exactly like that. But this may also be a symbolic way of describing God's judgment on the water supply that could come through a number of means. So some people have speculated this is talking about acid rain. It's talking about nuclear fallout. There's a number of ways that God could bring particular judgments on particular pieces of the physical creation. So if you watched the news last week, you saw that the leaking nuclear reactor in Japan is pouring radiated water into the sea, and there's a corruption of the water supply, of all the, all the sea life, right? Could be something like that that happens to bring this judgment on the earth. We don't know. It's probably best for us to be a little bit agnostic about exactly what this is talking about and how it's going to play out, and to hone in on the point of these four trumpets, which is... God is bringing His judgment on the natural order. Remember, we talked last week about decreation, God undoing, God bringing judgment against the physical world because of its fallenness and brokenness. And so the point of all this is what we said last week. God is going to judge the earth. God's justice, God's wrath is going to be poured out on this physical world. And therefore, if your hope is in anything in the created order, then your hope is in the wrong place. You cannot have your hope in anything that is created. Your hope needs to be in the Creator who is sovereign over the earth, who is bringing a new heavens and a new earth. And so I think the writer of Hebrews sums it up nicely. Look with me at Hebrews 12. These verses will be on the screen for you. The writer of Hebrews says this, See to it, that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, speaking of the people in the Old Testament, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. This is talking about Mount Sinai when God gave the Ten Commandments. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. 
This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We have two choices. Your hope can be in things that are made which will be shaken, or in God's unshakable kingdom which is brought by His Son, Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews says those are your options. So let us thank God that we have hope in a kingdom that cannot be shaken because what we know of reality will be shaken. This is the point of Revelation 8. God bringing His justice and judgment on the earth. Now in verse 13 of chapter 8, we see this interlude. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So in between the fourth trumpet and the fifth judgment, there's this this pause for warning, this increased intensity, this sense of, okay, now, now things are going to get even worse. And so this serves as sort of a literary marker for us to stop, to pause for a minute, to take notice of what's about to happen. Now, in order to make sense of chapter 9, I need to set it up a little bit for you. And so let me do that this way. We often say here at Quorumdale that everybody worships. In other words, that worship is not something that is unique to Christians, to religious people, but rather, worship is something all of us do. Worship is simply the ascribing of worth or value to someone or something. And so all of us worship. All of us hold something as ultimate. Basically, it comes down to this. You will either worship God or you will take something else and put it in the place of God and allow it to become ultimate and allow it to define your identity and your life. And so in the Old Testament, because those cultures tended to be more animistic, we see idolatry that takes the form of wood, stone, precious metals. There are many cultures in the world where that's still what idolatry looks like. In our culture, we are a little more refined, but we do the exact same thing. We take created things and we elevate them to the level of deity. We worship them. We serve them. Okay, think of serve as a biblical synonym for the word worship. Because I think sometimes we talk in language of worship, you think about like singing songs and stuff. Okay, what we're talking about is serving, living for something, some false god. So, Uh, We talk about modern idolatry. In America, people live for all kinds of things, right? Some people live for sex or pleasure or approval or success or comfort or security or control. There are multiple things that we live for. But beneath every one of our surface sins, every behavior problem you have is some form of idolatry, something deeper that you are craving, that you are living for, that is driving and animating your behavior. So, for instance, we often say, listen, if you have an anger problem, your problem is not really anger. Anger is the symptom. 
but there's something else at the root. So, so you can deal with your anger all day. That doesn't root out the idol that's in your heart that's causing you to become angry. So if you'll step back and start asking, why do I get angry? What kinds of situations make me angry? What does it tend to be that arouses my sense of anger? You'll find perhaps a multitude of things underneath that. Many times anger is rooted in a desire for control. And so when I don't have control, when someone isn't letting me be in charge, I become angry. Sometimes anger is rooted in a longing for respect. And so when I feel disrespected, I become angry. Sometimes anger is rooted in a longing for people's approval. And so if people do not approve of me, if they do not think well of me, then I become angry. There could be all kinds of idols lying underneath. But the point is your problem isn't anger. It's something that lies deeper. And so we often say, you need to ask the question, what, what false god are you worshiping? What is it that's down there at the root that, that you're investing with some sense of significance and worth and importance that's driving those surface level sins? All of us worship. But, but here's the insanity of idolatry. Here's the insanity of false worship. When we worship things other than God himself, uh, what happens is those things begin to enslave us. They begin to dominate us. They begin to exert power over us. In fact, even our culture recognizes this, right? The language of addiction is simply secular language for the biblical language of slavery. Okay, so think. Slavery, Bible, addiction, culture, they're describing the same reality. What they're describing is you've been mastered by something. Something has begun to exercise influence over you. Something has begun to define you. Second Peter 2.19 says, A man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. So see, the Bible just says your ultimate problem is slavery to some false god, to some idol. Do you, not, do you know why you have a porn addiction? Because you worship sex, or pleasure, or comfort. Do you know why you have an eating disorder? Because you worship control. Do you know why you're a workaholic? Because you worship achievement, and it has begun to dominate and master you. See, idols enslave you. They're not harmless. I mean, what's the, what's the classic line of the addict, right? I can stop anytime I want. All of us believe that in our heads. We don't believe that our idols will actually enslave us and begin to exercise dominant influence over us. But in fact, they do. And, and here's my concern for us, the people of Coram Deo. I, I think what's happened for us is we've become comfortable with the language of idolatry. I think we've done a fairly good job at acknowledging as a church community, man, our, our problems don't lie on the surface. They're usually deeper. And so we're good at saying, man, idolatry is really the issue. And we can use the language of idolatry. We can talk about, man, I, I, I idolize control. Or, I, man, I have an approval issue. Or, you know, I have comfort issues. Issues are just the nicer way of saying idols, right? But, but you know what my concern is? Naming those things 
is different from repenting of them, isn't it? See, it's great that you can identify your idols. So what? If they still enslave you, if they still have power over you, if they still control you, then so what that you know what they are? That's not the goal. The goal is to be freed from them. The goal is to have their power over you broken. So recognizing idolatry isn't good enough. It doesn't do anything for us. So let's go a step deeper. Why do idols have that enslaving power? Why do things that we make ultimate in our life begin to control and dominate us? The answer the Bible gives to that question is this. All idolatry is demonically inspired. Underneath every one of your idols is demonic influence. And it's funny because as soon as I say that, I know I've lost like 25% of you. Because you are modernistic and rationalistic in your thinking, and so you think, well, now we just crossed the line to talking about sort of supernatural demon categories, and I don't buy that junk, and so let's move on from there. Now, that's unfortunate. Certainly, your culture has done a good job preaching a gospel of rationalism that you've bought into. But even in our modernistic culture, we recognize something deeper underneath our behavior, don't we? We just don't know what to call it. But, but listen to me. It's there. And we know that it's there. Let me show you how that's true. In the Bible's anthropology, the Bible's understanding of human beings, we are body and soul. Okay? Body and soul together. So you're, you, it's not like you're an embodied soul or a soul with a body, but you are soul and body. Okay? And so there is a physical component to you and there is a spiritual component to you. What our culture has done is to carve out the spiritual side and say, you are simply a biological machine. And so if that is true, we have to figure out a way to explain the same realities using only biological language. See, what the Bible does is allow us to say certain things about you are physical, they have to do with your body, and certain things about you are spiritual. So you can have physical maladies and you can have spiritual maladies. You can have physical illness and you can have spiritual illness. Illness. There are a need for your soul to be healthy. When we talk about spiritual formation and soul health, we're talking about there's a, there's a spiritual component to you that needs to be rightly oriented to God and to others. Okay? Now, the secular world in, in modernism has said they have to explain the same reality, but we can't have any recourse to the spiritual, so what do we do? Everything is biological. So guess what? Man, if something's wrong with you, Let's get you on some meds, right? Let's, let's medicate it because it must be biological. We can't cross the line and say, maybe there's something wrong with you spiritually. Maybe your soul's not rightly oriented to your creator. Maybe there's sin, wickedness, idolatry, unrepentance, demonic influence. Those categories exist over here. They don't exist over here. But if you study what Freud had to say about the unconscious... If you study what psychologists today are investigating with regard to the motivation for behavior, you'll see we're still, we still have this mysterious category of things that animate us and influence us that are not biological. We just are not quite sure what to do with it. And so you have this dramatic spike of people on 
psychotropic drugs out of a conviction in the medical community that there, there is no other answer but biology. Now listen, remember, over here, physical and spiritual are still different. So I'm not saying everything that we medicate for is spiritual in nature. That's not what I'm saying at all. Please don't hear me saying that. But what I am saying is, in the Bible's anthropology, there is physical and spiritual. And so what the book of Revelation, what the Bible are asking you to deal with is the fact that underneath your idolatry is spiritual demonic influence. That it is indeed possible that much of what drives you, much of what lies under the surface of life as you see it, has everything to do with spiritual reality, with demonic influence. Listen, think about, think about dehumanizing things that you see. Think about things like eating disorders, alcoholism, Think think about anything that sort of dehumanizes people and ask the question, could it be that the being whom Jesus called the destroyer, the one whose goal is to destroy and deface the image of God, could it be that there's some influence there in anything that destroys and works against the good of humanity? Or do we really want to say, it's just all biological? The Bible's anthropology is so much richer and so much truer than your culture's anthropology. And you see, excuse me, idolatry cannot be merely recognized, identified, acknowledged. It has to be destroyed. Idols have to be turned from, repented of, taken out of the equation. Because underneath idols lie demonic influences. And if you don't turn from idols, if you're not willing to destroy them and turn away from them, do you you know what God does eventually? He lets you have what you want. He turns you over to them. The the language of Romans 1, you can read it later today, it is humanity took created things, put them in the place of creator, and so what did God do? He gave them over. He allowed them to run down that road. He gave them up to their idolatry and to the demonic influences that lie underneath it. Revelation 9 shows us what that looks like. Look with me again at Revelation 9, verse 1. The fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth, or any green plant, or any tree, which is weird since locusts are herbivores. So this is your first clue. These are not locusts this is talking about. Right? Who are they allowed to harm? Only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. What this is describing, John is using the language of a locust plague to describe the unleashing of demonic agents who are allowed then to have their way with humanity. As a vehicle of God's judgment, God's giving us over to our idolatry. 
This is demonic influence that's allowed to run free and roam on the earth. Uh, likewise, in verse 16, or verse 13, excuse me, we see the sixth angel blowing his trumpet, and there's this voice that says, release the angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And so these angels are released to kill, it says, a third of mankind. Now, what's really funny about this is that people who are real into like literal geography have like tried to figure out what nation east of the Euphrates has an army as big as the one described here. And so people are like, man, I think it's China because they have a really, really big army. They got lots of people. Okay? Uh, that's missing the point. Once again, this is not describing a physical army. It is describing the unleashing of demonic agents on the earth to torment, to kill, to persecute humanity. That's the point of the descriptions. If you read the descriptions of the locusts, the descriptions of the horses, they will sound a lot like the description of Jesus in chapter 1, meaning it's describing something, but it's using languages trying to get at what what, what is this like. The, The language here is very highly symbolic, deep imagery to try to describe the power, the fearsomeness, the awesomeness, the authority with which these demonic beings are able to inflict pain and torment on humanity. But look with me at verse 20 of Revelation 9. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities, or their thefts. See, part of God's purpose in all of this is to bring judgment in a way that awakens people and brings them to their senses. I I need to repent. I need to turn from this. I need to stop worshiping these false gods. I need to stop living in these immoral patterns of behavior. Revelation 9 says, in spite of this judgment that God brings, in spite of giving people over to what they want, There will be some who will not repent, who will not turn, who will not acknowledge God as the true God. As many people read the book of Revelation, they wonder, they ask the question, well, why hasn't this happened yet? Right? Like, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus came, and since this got written, and Whatever, right? I haven't seen this. It's a little weird and mystical and imagery and symbolic, symbolic language anyway. Why has this not happened yet? Revelation 9 gives you a clue, and in fact, it's more specific in Second Peter chapter 3. Listen to what Peter says. In the last days, scoffers will come. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Hey, I don't see the sea turn to blood. I don't see the sky falling. I don't see any of this happening. The world is just as it was. Verse 8, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, 
not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why hasn't the end come? Why doesn't God pour out His wrath on the earth? Because He's patient. Because He's giving you and me and your neighbors and people in your city an opportunity to repent, to turn from their idols, and to serve the true and living God. And Peter closes by saying, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavenly bodies will pass away with a roar and be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Hey, this is, this is coming. It hasn't come yet because God is patient. He's giving you opportunity to repent. See, if it's true that idols enslave you, if it's true that idols begin to exert power and dominance over you, then here's the truth. You can't free yourself, can you? Slaves can't liberate themselves. They need to be liberated. And the good news of the gospel is that God has sent one with the power to free you from your enslavement to idolatry, to false gods, to false worship, and that one is Jesus. And see, here's the amazing thing about Jesus, especially in light of Revelation 9. Did you notice in Revelation 9 who it is that Satan and his demons are tormenting? It's the people that don't follow Jesus. In other words, the people who are already worshiping idols and therefore under Satan's influence, those are the very people he's tormenting. He's tormenting the citizens of his own kingdom. But see, Jesus came to be tormented to allow you entrance into his kingdom. He came to take the wrath of God that you deserve and to bear the torment that your sin brings upon you so that you could be freed from that and experience not torment and wrath and judgment, but blessing. Jesus is in every way a better master, a better Lord than Satan. And really, as Revelation pulls back the curtain of the world and reveals the underlying structure of reality, you're confronted with two things. There is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus, and there is the kingdom of Satan and his demons. Those are the two kingdoms that are at war underneath the structure of everything you experience in life and underneath the fabric of reality that we see in the world. And so you can continue to serve Satan by being enslaved to idolatry and to sin and to things that are created that you make ultimate. Or you can worship Jesus, the one who's come to free you, to liberate you from slavery and to make you not a slave but a son or a daughter, to open up a way into his family. See, Satan's happy for you to be his slave so that he can destroy you. Jesus was destroyed for you to make you a son or a daughter. And so we often describe and talk about conversion in the language of worship. Really what it means to be a Christian is to take your worship off of whatever it is that controls you right now and to worship Jesus instead. To, to, to take whatever is primary and ultimate in your life, to turn from that and to make Jesus what is primary and ultimate in your life. To, to, to worship Him as Lord instead of living under the dominance of the idols that you crave and run after. That's what Revelation is inviting you to. That's what Revelation is trying to reveal and show to you is, listen, there are two choices. You worship idols and the demons that lie underneath them or be delivered from that 
and worship Jesus. Let's pray together. Jesus, we pause this morning to worship you as the one who has freed us. And the Bible uses language like ransom and redemption and propitiation. And all of these are terms that describe you buying us out of slavery, freeing us from being enslaved to idols and to sin and to Satan and liberating us by your death so that we might be free to walk with you as your sons and daughters. And so, Jesus, we pray that we might see more starkly this morning the reality of those two choices. That all of us either worship false gods or we worship the true God. That when it comes down to it, we either can worship idols and Satan or we can worship Jesus who was destroyed for us. And who now reigns and rules over all of creation and one day will bring his judgment for sin on the earth. God, would you awaken our hearts with worship? Jesus, would you call us this morning to turn from our idols and to hope in, trust in, rely on you for your glory and for our good. Amen.